You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. We're looking at Matthew 7, 7 through 11, as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount. The title of today's message is, Lord, Grant What You Command. Lord, Grant What You Command. In the early part of the 5th century... One theologian's simple prayer caused a firestorm. And it wasn't just the prayer, it was specifically one line of the prayer that caused a firestorm. Let me read it for you and see if you can maybe ascertain why this particular line of his prayer caused such a problem. Quote, Lord, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Grant what thou will, command me to do whatever you want, but grant what you command. And if you're familiar with those words, you know that that was uttered and prayed by the great church father and theologian, and I will continue to mispronounce his name, bear with me, he will forever be St. Augustine in my mind. Because I grew up in North Florida, and if you know North Florida, there is a city south of my hometown of Jacksonville called St. Augustine. No one in Florida calls it St. Augustine. And so it is in my DNA to call him Augustine, so I will call him Augustine. So forgive me. Those words were uttered by St. Augustine, and they, to use modern parlance, triggered another British monk named Pelagius. Why would Pelagius take issue with someone praying, Lord, Command whatever you will, but grant what you command. What's the problem? Well, R.C. Sproul says this, quote, With respect to Augustine's prayer, Pelagius had no problems with the second part, command what you will. It was the first part of the prayer that exercised Pelagius, in which Augustine asked God to grant what he commands. Pelagius reacted by saying that whatever God commands implies the ability of the one who receives the command to obey it. Man should not have to ask for grace in order to be obedient. So maybe now you understand why myself and all the elders of Redeemer are committed Augustinians. That I know through experience, painful experience, and through exegesis, that God has every sovereign right to command his creatures whatever he will. But that does not inherit that we have the ability as fallen creatures to obey it. So we pray with Augustine, Lord, command whatever you want, but grant what you command. I don't have the ability to do everything that I am required to do because I am fallen and I am weak. Pastor Redberg has rightly repeated over and over throughout our series on the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not the way into the kingdom, that if you do all the right things and you live a virtuous life, then you'll be granted salvation and entrance into the kingdom. No, no, no. He has rightly said time and time again that it is the way of the kingdom. And so, I think that Augustine was correct. God has every right to command his creatures to obey him, and we desperately need his grace to do so. And we see that flow in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a way to garner favor with God to get into his kingdom. As we're going to see, it begins with blessedness, 
which is shorthand for graced. How do graced people live when they love their enemies and they count it all joy when they're persecuted and they give freely and they do all the things that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount? But I think we also know that as kingdom citizens, we often find ourselves saying, Lord, command me whatever you want. I trust you. But grant what you command because I need your help. The main point that I'm going to argue for today in our text is this. To live fruitfully in God's kingdom, we must diligently seek God's power. To live fruitfully in God's kingdom, we must diligently seek God's power. So three points that I'm going to make to kind of walk us through today's text. The aim, the way, and the promise. The aim, the way, and the promise. Let's read our text together as we jump in. Starting at verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So the aim, where is this text going? I'm very zealous to get something right, and that is, this text is critical, and it all hangs on a two-letter word, it. If you have an ESV, the editorial heading above verse 7 says, ask, and it will be given. So what exercised my thinking all week was one word, it. This is what makes pastors weird people. So I'm going, Lord, if we get the it wrong, then the whole text falls apart. What are we asking, seeking, knocking for? Because you said if we do, it will be given. Is it a new car? Is it perfect health? Because that'll preach in today's culture. If you just have enough faith, if you just knock hard enough, you'll get all the goodies, right? That's not how we're going to preach this text because that's not what the it is. But in order to answer that question, we have to pan out and get a high-level view of everything that we've preached so far that, so we don't rip this out of context. That's never a good idea. So go back to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to take this as a literary unit. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. Matthew 5, the whole thing began with the Beatitudes. If you can remember that far back, it seems like forever ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. And as I've already said it a number of times, blessedness indicates grace. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose transgression is covered, Psalm 32. Blessedness means you have been graced. This is how graced people live. This is how forgiven people live. So already, this is not a blueprint for getting yourself saved and earning favor with God. That is the antithesis of what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching. It begins with grace. And then, in light of sovereign grace... How do we respond to grace? And wouldn't you know that that's the ebb and flow of all of Scripture? When did the Jews receive the Ten Commandments? Before or after 
they were sovereignly redeemed from slavery. It was after. The Sermon on the Mount says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the suzerain who has redeemed you with my right hand. I have single-handedly redeemed an unworthy people, and I have rescued you in power, and I'm bringing you into my presence, into my place. Now, here's how you respond to grace. Here's the greater Moses on the mountain, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, you are blessed, you are my people. Here's how you respond to grace. Revelation and response is the flow of scripture. So we're just gonna eradicate any thought that the Sermon on the Mount is a how-to manual, right? And what follows sovereign grace throughout the Sermon on the Mount is a litany of imperatives. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 16 of chapter five. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lights are attractive only when it's dark. So vis-a-vis, when he says, go, my kingdom people, go, my graced and forgiven people, go and let your light shine in really dark places. Really dark places are scary. And I I don't naturally find myself moving into darkness very easily. I find myself needing a lot of assurance and encouragement. That's a hard thing. I mean, it looks cute on a coffee cup, but to live it. What about 523? Leave your anger at the, leave your gift at the, the altar if you're angry with your brother and go and be reconciled to your brother. That's hard. I'd rather keep my gift at the altar and look spiritual in front of my church family, but I really don't want to go and get messy and confess sin and do the one another thing, right? (laughs) Look at Matthew 5, 27 through 30. In our insanely sexualized culture, How contrary are these words of our Lord Jesus Christ? If a man has lustful intent in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Tear out your eye and cut off your hand. Do whatever it takes to flee the dumpster fire of sexual temptation and lust. In this culture, that's hard. And not to mention what follows after the totality of the Sermon on the Mount. There's teaching on divorce, teaching on swearing an oath, teaching on loving your enemies, teaching on giving to the poor, teaching on praying, teaching on fasting with the right motivation, teaching on forgiving other people, teaching on storing up treasures in heaven, teaching on fighting anxiety and trusting in the Lord's provision in hard times. And not to mention last week, oh, how convicting it is to teach and preach a sermon like last week, then have to live with that for a week after you just told hundreds of people to get the log out of their eyes before they get a speck out of someone else's. Oh, how many times I've had to preach that to myself. Beloved, the reason I bring this up is because when we come to our text today, so you can go back, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, what's the it that we are so diligently asking, seeking, and knocking for 
in context of the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's already been revealed back in the Lord's Prayer of Matthew 6. The very first thing that graced people are called to pray for, the ultimate thing, not secondary, not tertiary. These things are important. We need bread to live. Yeah, 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 we get it. But what's the first thing that Jesus says? Pray like this, hallowed be your name. And another way to render that is God cause your name to be hallowed. I'm going to argue that the aim, the it, is the glory of God. That's the it, is that his name would be made holy and revered and honored. The conduct of the kingdom that we just looked at is a means of displaying our joy and satisfaction in the king himself. So far from today's text being about, if you have enough faith, you'll get the Cadillac. What a low vapid use of this text. No, no, no. If you can read the Beatitudes and say, by God's grace, he's caused me to mourn over my sin. He's softened this hard heart of mine and made me meek. He's given me grace to want his name to be glorified, even up to the point of being persecuted. Then what is your primary heartbeat? God, be glorified, be glorified, be glorified. To the wind with the consequences, be glorified. But oh God, grant what you command because I am weak. That's the it. It's grace. It is grace to see him glorified through living out the kingdom imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount. So what is the way? We looked at the aim. It's the glory of God. Number two, what's the way? How do we do it? The way is the pursuit of God. The aim is the glory of God. The way is the pursuit of God. Now we get into our text. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What, what an insanely positive text. This passage is not about material prosperity, it's about spiritual prosperity. It's not about the pursuit of gifts, it's about the pursuit of the giver. So when you look and say, what are we asking for? If we take this in context of everything that came before it, this is an open invitation to seek the Lord in prayer. Commentator John Broadus says, one may be a truly industrious man and yet poor in temporal things, but one cannot be a praying man and yet be poor in spiritual things. If the aim of the Christian life is to see God hallowed and revered, and then I read the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing I'm asking for is forgiveness. It's one of the first things I had to do after preaching that sermon last week. Painfully aware of my own hypocrisy. Painfully, if you don't think you're a hypocrite, try being a parent. I've got five little mirrors that remind me of how hypocritical I can be. I can't believe he'd say that to his brother. Really? 
You, you, just, you just can't believe that little sinners would sin as if you don't. So the immediately preceding text says, what am I asking the Lord for if I want his name to be glorified? God, forgive me. Thank you for 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you just feel condemned and inadequate and, oh God, help me, come, come. That's why we sing and preach and pray the gospel. You come in and feel like, I haven't been a very good kingdom citizen. Confess that to the king who offers you free, blood-bought pardon, child of God. You think I know that. I've heard that my whole life. I know we can know it and not know it. So come. You who desire to see his name hallowed, ask for forgiveness and you will find it. He already says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek. Seek. This implies that we don't necessarily know where we're going, or more likely, we don't exactly know what to pray for. You ever been in that place where you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you say, oh God, I want you to be glorified. I really do. My spiritual impulse is that your name be hallowed at my work, in my home, in my church, in my community, in my nation. I just don't know exactly what to pray for. I don't know how to do this. Boy, that's, that sounds a lot like Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where Paul says what? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I drew a line in my Bible from seek in verse 7 back to that same word in Matthew 6.33. I don't think it's accidental. Back in Matthew 6, 33, he says, but seek first. What? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's the kingdom of God? It's the glory of the king. It is his name being hallowed in every sphere of life and every syllable that we utter. And I think it's very intentional that we see that same word. What am I seeking? I'm seeking God's glory. Okay, here's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how forgiven people live. But then you look at that and you look at your context and go, I don't always know what to pray for. I know I'm supposed to forgive my enemies, but newsflash, that's complicated. Especially when you're at odds with people in your own family, maybe. It's muddy. Many times the child of God knowing I wanted you to be glorified in my life, but I hit my knees and open my hands next to my bedside, and the only thing I can pray is, help! That's why he says, ask and seek. My wife took our kids to uh, Play Cafe last week, here in, or here, Maple Grove is, I live in the northern country of Maple Grove. Well, there's a place called Play Cafe where there's like little places where kids can play and make believe and it's really, it's really neat. And when you have five kids, if you go home with four out of five, those are pretty good odds. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> so at one point she said, I, I realized that the baby, the two-year-old, was missing. And his siblings said, oh, we know where he is. You know, and that, that should be enough to settle the issue. 
But then she realized, I don't think they know where he is. And so she started walking around the corner, and she hears this muffled sound. Mama, mama. So pathetic. A little nook in his mouth. Mama. Some other kid that we don't know had shoved him in a cupboard <laughs> and closed the door. It's, it's fine. It builds character. Kids... <laughs> Kids today are too soft. We had trampolines with just exposed springs and no safety net. <laughs> Millennials are pansies, get safety nets. <laughs> we tried to kick each other off the trampoline. <laughs> I should have said that in front of my boys. Never mind. <laughs> Point being, what was the first impulse of my child when he was in distress and didn't know what to do? Help, mama, help. Is that not the context of Romans 8 where it says, you do not have the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what does it go on to say? If we suffer with Christ, the typical time in a Christian's life when you lift your hands and say, I want you to be glorified, but I don't know what to do. Dad, help. Is when you don't know what to do. I think that's exactly what we see in today's text. Ask. You know you're supposed to forgive your enemies. You know that you're not supposed to hold on to money. You know that you're supposed to be a light in this dark world. But just watch the news for 10 minutes and you will find yourself saying, Lord, command me to do whatever you want, but God, please grant what you command. I don't know what to do. And oh, the sweet assuring words of our master where he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And do you notice that all of these are in the present imperative, meaning it's not just a one-time thing. Like God, hit me with a, a grace booster and I'll be fine. No, this is a ongoing reality of asking, seeking, knocking. We are dependent upon daily grace, not one-time grace. So you think, I've been praying the same thing for 30 years. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Amen. That's thoroughly biblical. Because who gets the glory for giving the grace? He does. God, cause your name to be hallowed by just helping me stay Christian one more day. And you wake up the next morning believing and you say, he did it. Amen. Don't take that for granted. Why'd you wake up believing this morning? wasn't you. Martin Luther points out something, though. At this point, if you're like me, you know that I should ask, seek, and knock for grace to glorify God in every realm of life, but Martin Luther says this, God knows that we are timid and shy. He knows that we feel unworthy. He knows that we feel unworthy to present our needs to God, and we think that God is so great and that we are so tiny that we do not dare pray. And that is why Christ wants to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. So at this point, you might be thinking, okay, I get it. I, if I'm a Christian, I've been graced. I've been called. I've been forgiven 100%. How do I respond to that grace? Well, you got a lot of passages here. Fasting, praying, treasures in heaven, forgiving enemies. This is hard stuff. But then he says, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. But at that point, we feel a little timid. How do we know? 
How do we know that we can do that? And that's the third point. The aim, the way, and the promise. The promise is the character of God. The character of God. Look at verse 9. Jesus sometimes speaks in parabolic fashion where it's hard to understand what he means. Here, he babbles to us in the clearest sense to make sure we get it. You cannot misconstrue his argumentation. Look at verse 9. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if that son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? What is he calling upon? Well, let me just say that there are some who can't say that. There are some who parents would give them stones and fish, and for that, I am deeply sorry. But because of common grace, he makes his rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. Typically, even the most rank pagan in this world has a parental impulse that if their son says, I need bread, will not gleefully and maliciously and sadistically hand them a rock and say, go starve to death. Because if you keep giving them rocks instead of bread, they're not going to be around much longer. So Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, even if debased and broken sinful people have enough of a parental impulse to give good things to their children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you what you ask him? You can't mistake this. He argues from the lesser to the greater, and then in Romans chapter 8, he argues from the greater to the lesser. <laughs> he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, if God did the insanely amazing thing of delivering over his son, if he did that, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to put his son on the cross, why would you doubt that he will forgive you take you home to glory, and raise you from the dead. So Jesus can argue both ways. And in this one, it's from the lesser to the greater. And notice something really theologically important, verse 11. He says, if you then who are evil, our Lord does not say if we who are evil. He is the impeccable, sinless Son of God. He does not implicate himself. But he rightly points out the reality of us. If we... You and I who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we say, Lord, you have saved me. You have forgiven me. I've tasted grace. And now that my heart is no longer stony, but it's fleshy, it's tender, and my eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ, everything in me beats for your name to be hallowed, but I am painfully aware of my weakness and my inability. And our Lord says, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. Lord, command me to do whatever you want, but grant what you command. He says, I will do just that. It will be given you. But then we think, can I trust him? Because my father 
wouldn't do that for me, earthly. Or maybe I know the gospel with my head, but I don't feel it in my heart. All I can see is my sin. For that kind of medicine, beloved, I had to bring out the big gun. Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Does not eternal love delight you? God is no stranger to you. He has known you long before you knew yourself. You were known unto God from the foundation of the earth. He was always thinking of you. There was never a period when you were not in his mind and on his heart. He loves us much better than we love our children. For we often love them so badly that we bring them up to evil and we tolerate them in their sin. But he loves us better than we love ourselves. For self-love it is that ruins us, but God's love it is that saves us and lifts us up to heaven and to perfection. So when you think, I want to glorify God in every realm, I want to respond to his grace rightly, but oh God, help me and will he do it? Romans 8.32, you tell that heart, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he not with him graciously give you all things? He said, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. He will not command you, follow me, and then mock you because you're unable to do it in and of yourself. No, Augustine hit the nail on the head. Command whatever you want, but give me grace to pick up that cross and follow you one more day because it's getting heavy. Augustine said, Lord, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Those who have been graciously blessed and brought into Christ's kingdom long for their king to be honored, and they know they need his help in order to do that. Thankfully, our Heavenly Father promises to give grace and power to those who long to find their joy in his glory. So we end as we began. Our text says three things, ask, seek, and knock. Number one, ask. If you are here apart from Christ, if you are here or listening online, you know I'm not a Christian. Maybe I just wandered in today. Maybe I'm just realizing even recently that my, my faith is very vapid and not real and not substantive. And I'm, I'm not a Christian. But I also realize that God is holy. And I realize that I am a sinner. And I realize that Augustine was right, that any hope I have of obeying God has to come from him. I can't muster it up. I've already broken his commandments and I know I'm going to keep doing it. Then ask for him to forgive you. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He fulfilled the law that you can't fulfill and he died the death that you deserve. And by faith in him, you are counted righteous in the sight of a holy God. And every obedient act that you render after that fact is an act of thanks and gratitude and worship. It is not meritorious. So if you were here apart from Christ, ask for his forgiveness. He's not being capricious with you. He's not going to fool you. He will forgive you. And to the child of God, if you think, I want his name to be glorified, but I've prayed the same prayer. I've, I've done the same thing. Beloved, begin again. Say, Lord, forgive me. I want you to be glorified in every part of my life. 
But Lord, like Augustine, command me to do whatever you want. Command me to love this enemy. Command me to let go of money. Command me to be a light in this dark world. But, oh God, grant what you command. And do you see the text? It will be given. Ask, seek. Seek God's wisdom. We are called primarily to pursue holiness over happiness. And the narrow, bloody road to Calvary requires a lot of wisdom. God, I read the Sermon on the Mount, but the practical application sometimes, I I don't know what to do. Seek him. And knock until he makes a way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and if he closes the door, so be it. If he opens it, walk through it. And if the path is scary and if your hand's getting a little raw from knocking, don't forget the character of your God. In Christ, you are forgiven. Your father is not snickering on the other side of the door because he's playing games with you. That is bad theology. He who did not spare his own son for you but gave him up for you, he will give you all things. And if he keeps the door shut for a little while, it's because he's forming your character and he's burning off the dross. He's not playing games with you. Amen.